Welcome to the Anti-Architect Podcast. I am your host, Christian Giordano. As president and owner of the design firm Mancini Duffy, I am driven by a quest for learning and radically changing the industry. With this podcast, I'm hoping to improve the industry that I'm so passionate about by taking a critical look at how architects work through a variety of voices and shared experiences. Hello, Anti-Architect Podcast listeners. I'm excited to have Jeffrey Brashad, CEO of Philip Jeffries, as my guest today here in studio on the Anti-Architect Podcast. Founded over 40 years ago with just 10 grass cloth wall coverings in a garage, Philip Jeffries has become one of the world leaders in wall covering, winning the Best in Wall Covering Design Award eight out of the last 10 years. This New Jersey-based family business has grown to be one of the largest and most respected companies in the global design industry, with operations all over the world from the U.S. to Europe to Asia. His father, Eric, founded the company in 1976 with a vision and incredible entrepreneurial drive. In 2001, Jeffrey and his brother, Philip, took over the company from their father and have grown it to over 170 people worldwide. Jeffrey manages the business operations, oversees design, finance, talent, operations, and supply chain. Just a few things there. A couple things there. And, uh, and your brother does marketing. And sales. And, and sales. Uh, Jeffrey and his brother are committed to building the most energized and engaged company culture that the design industry has ever seen. They make wall covering fun. <laughs> In addition to the high growth and dedication to its employees, Philip Jeffries aims to be socially responsible by planting trees for every order. To date, they've planted over 170,000 trees. Love to hear about that too. While I've known of the company for 20 years and we've always used their products, I met Jeffrey for the first time a few months ago. Jeffrey joined the Global Leadership Group, YPO, or Young Presidents Organization, where I've been a member now for a while. And excited to just talk business when we met, he told me the story of their family business and I was blown away by how inspiring it, it is. And so, Thanks, man. Yeah, definitely. So, 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 so I've got to update that bio sheet when I send it over to you because yeah. we, we've grown a lot this past year. It's been a crazy year. We're actually up to about 260 people. Holy crap. From 170. That's awesome. So we've hired about uh, eight, more than 80 people this year. Oh, my and, uh And we're up to about 214,000 trees that we've planted. Wow. That's so, a lot. Yeah. That's time amazing. to update that sheet, I guess. <laughs> All right. Cool. So uh, listen, I have a whole backyard that needs planting. If you, <laughs> if you have any extra trees, I'll certainly That's right. It. Absolutely. I'll send them down. <laughs> Uh, so listen, thank you so much for being here. It's going to be a fun conversation. So let me start out with one of my favorite questions. And I want to really just jump into your your company and, and the origin story of it. Um, if you had to pick one thing, what annoys you about architects and designers? Uh, what annoys me about architects and designers? That's a great question, Christian. Um, because, you know, that's it, hard to answer. Um, I interact a lot more with interior designers than I do architects um, who have become a lot of my closest industry friends right. and teachers and mentors. Um, I guess the, the thing that probably uh, annoys me the most is um, when people are shopping on price mm -hmm. and where they're not looking at the quality of the goods. And so as an example, you know, we're the leader in a lot of natural wall coverings, almost all of which are, are woven and laminated in Japan, where we do most of our manufacturing. We actually own a factory in Japan. And uh, when you compare that to something that's woven and laminated in China, and you look at the quality, how it's made, the lack of uh, the, the difference in the craftsmanship, and then the pricing might be one or two dollars a yard less. <laughs> All right. And then and, and what does that mean to a, to a designer ultimately is, number one, how it looks on the wall when it goes up. Right. For instance, our Japanese weaves that become seamless versus when you see every single panel on something yeah. that is not to the same quality. And and uh, uh, and then we get a call afterwards and say, man, we should have used you. <laughs> and, and so uh, at the end of the day, I think uh, you there's so many times in our industry, you get what you pay for. Yeah. 100%. Right? And, and when it comes to the quality. Yeah, absolutely. It's great. Great answer. 
tell us about your father. You know, where did he grow up and how did how did this all kind of come about? Yeah. So so uh, I'll, I'll tell you the story of the founding of our company, because it's really kind of, as you mentioned, a fascinating story that we, we call it our saga. Right. And how the whole company started. And so um, our uh, mom and dad were high school sweethearts. They grew up in Verona, New Jersey. Uh, and after um, college, dad uh, joined the military during the whole Vietnam era. And uh, after he uh, was honorably discharged from his service, he went out to say, you know, what should I do for a living? And uh, he got a job as a rep for a wallpaper company. And, you know, uh, you kind of have to understand my dad. He's very much a schmoozer. He has an incredible entrepreneurial spirit. You know, at, I think uh, nine or 10 years old, he was selling uh, eggs door to door. Right. And so he always knew uh, that he would one day want to start his own company. And so he did that for about five, six years. And then uh, and, and I don't know how he had the the gall to do this. But with one kid already born and another, I was on the way and he left his job and said, I'm going to start up my own company. And so he would go around to different wallpaper factories all up and down uh, um, New Jersey, New York, Brooklyn and so forth. And he would say, do you have any seconds? Do you have any extras? Do you have any closeouts, any disco items? And he used to buy their disco items and sell it to um, wallpaper stores who were his customers. And back in the day, there used to be thousands upon thousands of wallpaper oh, yeah. stores before the Home Depot and Lowe's. I think my mother went to all of them in New Jersey. <laughs> I think so. back then it was, it was a huge thing. Everyone had a wallpaper store. And so dad did this and mom and dad saved every penny. And they actually opened up their own little wallpaper store in Livingston, New Jersey, which funny as it may be, is the town that both Philip and I live in today. <laughs> and, and just uh, random coincidence. And so um, in 1977, uh, the store was you know, only open a couple months and my dad got his first break. And he opened up the New York Times and it said there was an auction of a wall covering company in um, the southern part of Boston, kind of South Boston area. Mm -hmm. And it was going out of business. And on a Saturday morning, they were, I'm sorry, on a Sunday morning, they're planning on auctioning everything. And so I think it was uh, winter of 77. He jumped in the avocado green station wagon, you know, the one with like the woody along oh, the yeah. sides. Right? That thing. And, and jumped in at uh, 4 a.m., drove up to Boston. And he got there at 9.01 and he pulls into the parking lot and there's one car. And he's like, this is great. I'll be able to get whatever I want. And he starts knocking on the door, knocking on the door and no one answers. Finally, after like five minutes, an older gentleman answers. He says, how can I help you? And my dad says, well, I'm here for the auction. He goes, well, that was yesterday. He starts to close the door in my dad's face. And, and my dad, you know, is 30 years old, but he puts out his, his hand. He says, you know, you know, hold, hold on. It said in the New York Times on Sunday, he said that was a misprint on Tuesday. On Wednesday, they corrected it. The auction was yesterday. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and he's devastated. You know, he, he woke up at four o'clock in the morning, drove five plus hours to get up there. And so he says, well, can I at least come in and use your restroom? And the guy says, fine. And on his way uh, out at the warehouse, he, he says, well, I see you guys still have a lot of stuff on the shelf here. You know, can I take a look at it? And the guy says, sure, you know, uh, you're, you're happy to show you. And, uh, and so it's 1977, Christian. So I'll, I will play a little bit, you know, trivia here. Okay, 1977, what type of wallpaper do you think my father was really anxious to try and buy? What was hot back in the day? Oh, probably like floral prints kind of thing. Floral prints. So he's like, do you have any floral prints? I'm like, no, 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 no. We sold that right away. What, what else? What else? Yeah, like popish kind of stuff. Right. So, 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 so uh, pop art on like mylars, <laughs> right, like right, right. super shiny metallics, right? Oh, yeah. Like, oh, no, we sold all those mylars, I'm right? sure like, you know, like gold trim things. Some, something yeah. gold trim, yeah. right? And they're like, oh, I sold that. So my, my dad says, so, so what have you got? And the guy climbs up on a ladder to like the top shelf and he pulls down a roll. And he puts it out on the table and, and my father says, well, what is this? And he says, ah, oh, that's called a grass paper. It's from Japan. And my father takes out his notepad and writes down grass paper, right? And he says, how much do you want for it? And he says, maybe a, a hundred bucks for a case of a hundred yards. And dad had literally emptied our bank account, Ugh. right? So we had $500, <laughs> you know, in the bank account, takes $500, right? Puts it on the table, loads up the station wagon. And as he's heading back to Jersey, He's, you know, on the, the mass pike and all of a sudden he sees right when he's about to get on, he sees a sign and it says Waltham wallpaper. He says, ah, maybe they're open on a Sunday. So he doesn't get on the highway, he pulls off, pulls in front of Waltham wallpaper. And as he's walking in, the owner of the store is walking in at the same time. He, he went in to go do the books on a Sunday morning. And he says, what are you doing here? He says, oh, I'm a rep. 
Now, I don't know if any reps call on Mancini on Sunday morning, but, you know, if you were here, you might let them in, right? Definitely. And, and, and so he goes, yeah, come on in. And he says, what have you got? He goes, oh, I've got this uh, really cool stuff. He looks in his notebook and he says, uh, oh, it's called grass paper. And the guy goes, oh, you mean grass cloth? Oh, that stuff's beautiful. Let me, let me take a look. And he says, oh, it's beige. I'll, I'll, I'll take some beige. And he says, how much do you want for it? And so dad says, okay, well, I have no idea what this is supposed to sell for. So he goes, uh, how about uh, 200 bucks a box? And the guy looks at him like he's crazy. He says, 200 bucks a box for 100 yards? He goes, this stuff's usually 500 bucks a box. He goes, here's 1,000 bucks right here. So with like literally within 20 minutes, my dad doubled his money, <laughs> right? And, 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 and couldn't believe it was more money than he had seen in his entire life in 1977, right? Yeah. So he uh, gets back in the station wagon, drives back to South Boston, and knocks on the warehouse door. And the old man answers. He said, oh, did you get lost? You need directions. He said, no, I sold the wall covering. And the guy goes, on a Sunday? <laughs> the guy goes, on a Sunday. He says, well, what do you want? He goes, I want $1,000 of your best grass paper grass cloth. <laughs> and, and so they cut open the boxes and, and they uh, um, package up every single inch of the, the station wagons filled. The next day, Monday morning, he walks into Sipperstein Payne in Jersey City and turns it into $2,000. Wow. And he's like, this is great. <laughs> this is great. He's like, he's like, I found it. This is the product. This is what people want. It was the late 70s. Grass cloth was getting super popular. So he calls up to Boston and he says, hey, can I get $2,000? And the guy goes, I'm sorry, I can't help you. He says, what do you mean you can't help me? He goes, I've never had anything so popular in my life. You got to sell this to me. And the guy pauses and he said, well, he goes, we're out going out of business. I guess it doesn't matter. Here's the name and the number of the guy that you got to call. His nickname is the Godfather of Grass Cloth. <laughs> And, and, and so my dad pauses and goes, I don't know what I'm getting myself involved in here, but, you know, he, he calls and he makes an appointment and uh, goes to see uh, the godfather of grass cloth, who was actually in the uh, Empire State Building on 34th Street. Okay. And uh, uh, makes an appointment. As my dad tells I me mean, the story, he said, you know, I walk in and there's this little office filled with, you know, five uh, ladies, you know, and it's 77. So there's smoke everywhere, you know, <laughs> kind of like the blue hair, you know. Yeah. And, uh, and, and they make them sit there and they make them wait for about 45 minutes. After about 45 minutes, they say, all right, he'll see you now. And they open up these double doors and there's this huge office with these ginormous windows looking out and a giant desk and a little old man behind it. <laughs> and he says, all right, kid, you know, uh, you seem like a nice kid. How can I help you? And my dad says, sir, I hear that you are the man to see to buy grass cloth. He goes, well, you've come to the right place. And he said, uh, the old man says, son, how many uh, ocean containers of grass cloth would you like? <laughs> and my dad kind of pauses and says, well, how many yards are in an ocean container? He says, about 24,000. <laughs> he says, well, I don't know that I'm ready for an ocean container. He says, no, 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 no problem. How about a, uh, a full truckload? He goes, because that's the smallest increment that I sell in a box truck. He says, well, how many yards is that? He says, about 8,800. My dad leans into him and says, you know, sir, you know, I, I'm just starting out in business, but I know that I could sell this stuff for you, right? Can you just sell me? I've got $2,000. And the guy kind of laughs at him, right? And he says, you know, son, he goes, you seem like a nice kid and I wish you well. I, I don't wish you anything bad, but, you know, I sell to the big guys of the day. I sell to, you know, the, the, the Kravitz and the Schumachers and the, the Brewsters and, and, you know, I sell ocean containers and truckloads. Mm-hmm. And I don't sell, you know, one or two or three or four boxes at a time. So I wish you luck, but I can't sell to you. And so uh, Christian, my dad, walks out and uh, he walks out of the, the small office and, and is waiting for the elevator. And as the, the doors open, you know, you hear the little bing. Mm -hmm. and, and Eric, my dad, uh, as he turns to me, he goes, well, I heard the bing. He goes, all of a sudden I realized that this is one of those watershed moments of my life. And he's like, I found the, the source. I found the guy. And he says, uh, turns around. And, and by the way, this, for, for all the listeners out there, this is what my dad would say. Like, this is one of the lessons of the story. Yeah. In life, you got to have chutzpah. <laughs> right? You got, which is the Yiddish word for moxie and, mm -hmm. and, and, and nerve. Right? You got to ask for it. Right? And, and walks back in and the, the secretary says, where are you going? Walks right past her, opens the double doors, walks across this huge office. And now the guy's pissed off. He said, <laughs> I, I thought I told you to get out. Right? And, and Eric looks at him and he says, sir, you are, are so successful. In order to become so successful, at some point in your life, someone must have given you a break. Not asking for much. Pay you $2,000 cash right now. Can you give me my big break and help me get started? 
It's amazing. And, and the old, yeah, it's amazing, right? Like to have the, the, the nerve to do that. And the old man just stares at him like he's looking at a ghost, just stares at him. And after like 30 seconds, he takes out a piece of paper. He starts scribbling on the paper. Doesn't say anything, just scribbling on the paper. Looks up, hands him a piece of paper and says, this is my address. I was down in Chelsea. So this is my, my address of my warehouse. Here's my 10 best sellers. I'll give you 10 boxes of each. Good luck. Wow. And never said anything more. And, and, you know, another lesson that my dad taught me is once you get the sale, get the hell out of yeah, here. Yeah, exactly. right? <laughs> you didn't say much more, right? Took the sheet of paper, went yep. down to, to Chelsea, loaded up uh, the station wagon, went back again, loaded up, right? And uh, stored it all in our garage, right? <laughs> so the garage was filled to the rim with grass cloth and started selling it to, to wallpaper stores and then paid him and, and went back and, and did it again and again. And so uh, this is how my dad got his first start. And about uh, seven, eight years later, it was about 1984. Um, at this point, my, my dad is becoming a regular customer. He had just brought in his first ocean container, right? <laughs> and the old man calls him up and he says, come on in, I want to take you to lunch. And so they're sitting at a diner in New York City. And uh, the old man turns to him and he says, do you remember the day that you walked into my office and you asked for your chance? And my dad said, I'll, I'll never forget it for the rest of my life. And he said, well, I'd like to tell you a little story, too. And, uh, he said, I grew up in Austria. That's where my family had been for generations. And in the 1930s, we saw what was happening in Germany, the country next door, and the rise of Hitler and fascism. And he said, uh, and, and he said you know, I'm Jewish. He said, my family's Jewish. And, and we realized, you know, what happens if this spills over from Germany to Austria right next door? Yeah. And, and then Hitler started the Anschluss. He, he took over the, the land that was demilitarized between France and Germany. And then he took over Czechoslovakia. No one did anything. And then they amassed their troops on the Austrian border. And most of Austrians were saying, please come, please come. He realized we got to get out of here. So he, with his mom and dad, they applied for visas to the U.S. where his aunt and uncle were living. And they couldn't get visas. And they tried to go to England. They weren't accepted. In Argentina, Palestine, they, they tried to get out of there and they couldn't get a visa anywhere. And they were about ready to, to, to give up. And that weekend, someone came to their temple and the guy spoke and he said, I'm an ambassador of um, the Sassoon family of China. The Sassoon family in the 1800s had moved from uh, Iraq. Their Jews had moved from Iraq to India and China and set up a banking empire. Wow. And they knew what was going on. It was actually the ancestors of Vidal Sassoon. Okay. And, and they knew what was going on. And they said, we've chartered ships in Genoa, Italy. And you have to figure out how to get there. But if you can get there, we will get you to Shanghai, China, where it is a, a port city that you don't need an entry visa. And we'll help you get set up. We, we've rented apartment buildings and we'll help you get set up. And 10,000 um, mostly Jewish people from Germany and Austria left in his, his, this gentleman's case, they hiked over the Alps. They got to Genoa, Italy, went through the Suez Canal on a freighter and ended up getting all the way to Shanghai, China. I think it was 1937 or 38 around this time. I'm not exactly sure what year. And when they got there, he said life was great. He said they got my dad a job. They had a school for us, wow. right, where it was kind of like a, a German-speaking school that they had set up. And he said life was great for a couple months. And he said, however... Wars breaking out not just in Germany and in, and in Europe, but also in Asia. And so the Japanese had started their imperial crest. They had taken over uh, Korea. Mm -hmm. And then they took over the northern area, Manchuria, where like uh, Mongolia is today, yep. where all the resources are. And then they took Beijing and then Nanjing. And he said, we heard about these stories of the rape of Nanjing, how horrible it was. And now they had encircled Shanghai where my family was. It's like maybe within a year, I think it was, of them arriving. Okay. He's like, this is crazy. And he's like, everybody that could was running for the port to try and get on one of the last couple ships before the Japanese invaded the city. He said, there was millions of people and I got separated from my parents. And he said, it was the last day I saw my parents. Wow. He said, my parents ended up getting on a ship hoping, uh, I'd imagine hoping that I got on too and, and then I never did. And so I ended up going back to the flat where, you know, I, I had known some other friends and, and other families that, that uh, couldn't get out either. And they helped me out. 
And he said, but within a couple of weeks, the Japanese invaded the city. And they started taking every expat. If you were American, you were sent to a concentration camp. And if you were British, to another one. He said, but they got to this whole neighborhood of all these Austrian and German Jews. And, and Germany and uh, uh, Japan were allies. So they're like, what do we do with all these people? Mm-hmm. And so they said, you know what? We'll just set up kind of like an orphanage. And they uh, took this lieutenant who was probably the worst fighter. He had been drafted in and made an officer because he knew the right people. And they said, you know, you're a horrible fighter, so you, you take over this whole thing. And this Japanese lieutenant said to, 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 to the old man, right, when he was a young kid, he said, can you teach me German? I want to learn German. And so they started interacting. He started teaching him, the, the Japanese lieutenant, some German. And after about five or six months, they become friendly, but there wasn't f- enough food, right? It was a horrible conditions that they were living in. And one day, as the old man tells the story, he said to the, the Japanese lieutenant, I don't think I'm going to survive the war. Is there anything you can do for me? Can you help me get out of here? Oh, wow. And the Japanese lieutenant took out a sheet of paper and wrote up orders for this young kid, this young Austrian kid, to be uh, um, taken and shipped back to Japan. And when he got to Japan, the Japanese lieutenant's family picked him up and they brought him to their house. And then they said, you're going to work in the factory. And they had a factory weaving grass cloth. <laughs> and linen and burlaps and jutes and all different types of natural materials. During, during the war, they, uh, uh, the, the factory originally made textiles for clothing and then for Japanese sliding doors, uh, what they sure. refer to as fusuma so, doors or okay. shoji doors. Yep, yep. And um, during the war, they were making knapsacks for the, the war effort. Okay. Right? But he learned the craft. And they took care of him right? and treated him. Uh, and, and the Japanese lieutenant said, take care of this kid. And they did. Wow. And he lived there for six or seven years during the war. And when the war ended, he said, I'm going to, they said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to try and go to America and try and find my parents and my aunt and uncle. I at least know my aunt and uncle are in New York. And, and they said, well, why don't you take some samples with you? <laughs> and when he got to New York, he showed the samples and, and they were laminating it for wall covering. And 40 years later, he was the godfather of grass club. Wow. And, and, and so my dad is like blown away as he's telling him the story. My dad's, you know, 35 years old at the time. And my dad says, by the way, why are you telling me this amazing story? <laughs> and he said, the problem is, uh, my dad's name is Eric. He said, the problem is, Eric, that uh, I have cancer. Hmm. And he said, and I have no kids to leave my business to. And he said, when I started selling for this mill, I was one or 2% of their business. It didn't matter. But he goes, now I'm like 40 or 50%. And he said, and if my business dies, right, number one, this craft dies. And number two, all these mills die. And he's like, you know, we have this concept in, in Judaism. It's called Lidor Vador, which means from generation to generation, you pass on. He goes, in Japan, they've got the same concept, which is why the, the family businesses are like seven and eight and nine generations old. He goes, and I don't want them to die with me. And he said, so I'm not going to give you the business, but I'm going to give you the relationships. Wow. And my dad started going to Japan in the, the 1984, 1985, and he met the son of the Japanese lieutenant. Oh, wow. And ultimately, my dad started bringing his own containers and first selling to, to the big distributors of the day, and then started his own division, which he named after my older brother, Philip, and, and myself, Jeffrey. And so the company's called Philip Jeffries. And that is the, the history of how we kind of got started in the natural uh, wall covering business. It is absolutely incredible. So thank, thank you, you for sharing that. I mean, it really is. And when you told me that the first time I had the chills, I had it, I think more this time. So, I mean, it could be a movie. I mean, it really could be. It's, uh, well, maybe it's when we get to 50, we're 45 years this year. So maybe we get to 50, you know, maybe, uh, your wonderful producer over here can help us make, it a, right. make a movie of it. That is great. So, so let's switch gears and talk a little bit about your story and, sure. you know, kind of your upbringing. So, you know, obviously this is all going on. You, you know, that story very well, you tell it beautifully. So obviously this was something that, you know, was spoken about consistently in your house. Um, but the, the company itself was pretty small. Uh, I mean, honestly, until you, you and your brother really got involved, it was what, six or eight people. Yeah. About eight, 10 people. Yeah. Right? So, um, you know, what was it like growing up and and uh, around this whole industry of wall covering what did you want to be when when you grew up well i, I <laughs> as you probably tell you know i definitely idolized my dad and and this was definitely um something that always interested me growing up and and 
taking something that had been started, like the foundation, and then building uh, something, a beautiful cathedral from it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's kind of what, what always uh, the dream was and continues to be. So, you know, I grew up uh, uh, middle class New Jersey and with my brother and uh, who's was and, and is my best friend. It's great. And um, we always had dreams of running a business together one day. And um, both of us worked in the sample room, swept the warehouse, <laughs> worked in the warehouse, worked in customer service, worked in sales. And then uh, after college, uh, my brother went to University of Michigan and I went to Duke University. After college, both dad and Philip and I all agreed, let's do our own thing. Okay. And, and uh, I think it was a great decision. My brother um, first moved to Chicago and uh, he worked for um, a, a 3PL doing brokerage. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I, I had worked for him one summer and fell in love with Chicago, which is an amazing city. Yeah. And after I graduated college, I went uh, to work for Ernst & Young okay. as a consultant. And they said, where do you want to go? You can go to New York, San Francisco, L.A., Boston, D.C. And I said, did you mention Chicago? And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, Chicago. And I said, great, I'd love to go to Chicago. <laughs> and so I spent about four years uh, traveling 52 weeks a year. Oh, wow. And working for amazing companies like uh, Anderson Windows, the largest window company in the sure. world. Um, and then uh, some companies that you've probably heard of like Best Buy, General Electric and FedEx. Okay. And uh, doing my, what with them? So uh, I was in the supply chain consulting division. Oh, and so um, we were trying to teach these amazing companies how to do their supply chains. Imagine trying to teach FedEx how to do their supply chain better, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and implement new computer systems and efficiencies in order to make their, their businesses better. And so it was a, a great experience. But I was the low man on the totem pole. Don't, don't get me wrong. You know, uh, I, as I like to say, they sent me to Minneapolis in the dead of winter. And then they sent me to Fort Myers, Florida in the middle of July. <laughs> you know? But it was, it was a great experience. And so what do you think you took from that experience you know, to where you are presently? Well, I, I think that it's twofold. One is, um, had I gone right into the family business, I think it would have been a very insular experience from the company culture. Right. Because as I like to say, my dad, uh, uh, I, listen, he'll, he'll probably hate that I say this, but I said he was a great benevolent dictator. Right. <laughs> and, and, and which is, I think most small businesses, right, have that one person that can make every single decision, product, design, marketing, uh, sales, mm-hmm. right, finance. Right. And, and, and the beauty of that is that you get great efficiency. The problem is everything starts to bottleneck and then the company can't grow any bigger. Yeah. Which probably happened to an extent as well. And so working for an amazing company like Ernst & Young, it was all about learning. It was all about mentorship. It was all about how to move up throughout the organization. Um, and my brother, his company was a startup. I think he was employee number like 33. They got up to like six or 700 before they sold to a Fortune 500 company. And uh-huh. it was an amazing energy uh, um, you know, where you'd bring in beer on Friday afternoons type of thing, you know, that, that type right. of, of sales energy. And so I think when Philip and I decided to join Philip Jeffries and dad, you know, accepted us as well. And, and listen, it was a huge risk, right? It was uh, right after 9-11 uh, okay. um, and, you know, the economy was crashing and, um, and we all took huge pay cuts. You know, mom and dad took a pay cut. My brother took about a 70% pay cut. I took oh, about wow. 50% and you could tell he was making a lot more money than me. <laughs> but um, we came in and said, you know what? We're, we're going to try and, and build this thing up. And uh, we didn't have great distribution at the time for Philip Jeffries. And so that kind of became one of our first focuses. Okay. Um, how do we build the distribution, create amazing product design, and then support it with awesome operations? What was the product line at that point? Was it still grass cloth and that was it? Or... Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So in 1990, it's so interesting. I was interviewing a wallpaper installer this week and this guy had a wallpaper installation school. And he's like, for 20 years, I would have 350 to 400 wallpaper installers every week uh, or every year. And he said in 1990, it stopped. It went from like 350 students a year to five. <laughs> and, and the wallpaper industry, for whatever reason, stopped cold. This was like after the Kuwait uh, invasion by Iraq and the Gulf War and the country went into like a major recession and tons of wallpaper companies got put out of business. Interesting. Um, And so my dad being a survivor and entrepreneur pivoted. 
So he had his natural grass cloths and linens, but he introduced wallpaper. Okay. And then he stumbled from the wallpaper into a company that made fabric that looked like the wallpaper. <laughs> and then he ended up becoming the distributor for one of the big English fabric print companies. And, and Christian, this is back in the 90s when it was like all about the swags. Oh, you know, yeah. Everything were five layers of print fabrics and swags. And so uh, by the time I got there in uh, late 2002, uh, so Phil, Philip joined in 01 and I joined late 02. Um, and uh, by then... Uh, the wall covering industry had really been decimated. And so, um, you know, we had fabric for window treatments, fabric for upholstery. We had wallpaper. We had wall covering. We had passementry and trim, leather trims. And, and, uh, and, and we had a, a line of leather rugs. Oh, wow. And so we had a really diversified uh, line. And after uh, about... 12 months of learning the business, sat down with my dad and my brother and, and uh, one of our other top, top uh, lieutenants and said to them, who the hell are we and what do we do? Right? <laughs> well, what do we stand for? What, what is our brand? Yeah. Right? And, and Philip said, you know, I was just in, in Dallas calling on a showroom and they're like, so what's the story of where you guys are going? Because you do a little bit of everything and it's all mediocre. Mm. And it was like a great wake-up call. And we sat in a conference room and said, what do we want to be? And, and we kind of went to the Jim Collins hedgehog principle, uh-huh. right? Which is, you know what? What can you be the world's best at? Right. Choose one thing to be the world's best at. And so we got rid of the wallpaper and got rid of the fabric and got rid of the rugs and threw out all the trims. And we said, you know what? We're going to try and be the world's best natural textile wall covering company. And then... We started, how do we do that? We got to design. We got to be innovative with design. Stop waiting for factories to come to us. Okay. Let's hire our own designers. Let's start designing our own things. Go to the factories with new innovative ideas. And then some of those innovative ideas were so far-fetched that we said, you know what? This isn't natural or textured. This is specialty. <laughs> and, and so today, our, our um, uh, vision evolved to how do we become the world's best natural textured and specialty wall covering company okay. or, or today just how do we become the world's best wall covering company? Yeah, absolutely. So explain the difference between wall covering and wallpaper. All right. So <laughs> to, to me, there's a huge variation. It's like day and night, right? <laughs> but, but to the common person, it, it, every, oh, it's just wallpaper, right? And so wallpaper is when you take uh, uh, a base paper and you print on it, like the florals that we were talking about right. earlier. Right. So for us, wall covering is everything textured. Right. And so it could be made of burlap. It could be made of suede. We have gold, you know, 14 karat gold wall covering and silver wall covering. We take uh, grass cloths, bamboos and uh, and we screen print on them. We digitally print on them. And then for our contract customers, because we we would design these amazing wall coverings and then get subbed out on all the hotels. <laughs> and, and so in uh, around 2009 or 10, we came out with um, our contract line that we call PJ Contract. Okay. And we took some of our favorite best-selling naturals, linens, grasses, um, um, and, and, and some really cool decorative products and recreated it in type 2 indestructible vinyl, fabric okay. back vinyl. Right. Which is the kind of stuff that a typical corporate architecture firm such as us yes. uses a lot. And we do use the specialty papers and yes. we do use the, the finer the finer materials. But and it's funny, you, you, you know, I was thinking about it for for me. And I would say for probably the majority of the designers in the corporate world, the wall covering never really died. And we've always used it, right? It's always been part of our design. We've always used it in some method or graphic or whatever. But from the residential side, it really did, you know, die for a while. Oh, die, and, yeah. and installers are very, I know from my own personal experience, you know, getting someone to install wall covering was painful. I mean, it was like one guy in the, in the area in Monmouth County, New Jersey, where I am, that was good enough to do it right and and it's a it's an art and is that coming back at all do you know i will tell you christian it is at the top of uh uh, so when we do a swat analysis your strengths weaknesses and opportunities and threats it's certainly one of the threats that's out there for for uh, every wall covering company in the world right now and 
you know, the, the big joke among wall covering manufacturers is when uh, a designer calls up and said, oh, I have a problem installing it. And I had the best wall covering installer in the world. He's been doing it for 35 years. It's like I've never had a call where they said, oh, well, he just started about five years ago, but he's great. You know, it's like <laughs> everyone's 35 years. And so um, I, I know uh, from numerous conversations, many wall covering installers are concerned about it. Yeah. It's about the dying art. And I'm actually uh, working right now on a program that. Um, you know, what I want to do is I want to create a wall covering academy online so that the artisans and, and listen, it's an amazing career for an artisan, for someone that I, you know, you're right across the street from FIT, right? So someone that, that wants to be an artist, but says, I don't know if I can make a living in this, right? What a great career to be able to work with your hands, be an artisan and make probably 20 times what you would make as a fine artist, (laughs) right? Within two, three years, because there's a huge demand for people. And and the problem is ensuring that not, I mean, just about anyone, a painter can install type two vinyl. It's mm-hmm. easy. You put it through a machine, you prime the walls and you slap it up. When you get to some of our specialty wall coverings, as well as how to install grass cloth, there is an art to it. Yeah. Right. Well, you talked about that seamless, right? And that's where it falls apart. I think on the install is, is at those seams. How, how, cause that's where the art is. How do you seam things together perfectly without glue, without seepage, all of that stuff. Right. And when you see the really good ones, they do what's called a double cut on the wall. Yeah. Right. With special tooling that doesn't cut into the, the, you say it to the wrong person, they'll cut right into your sheet. Oh, I'll do that. And they'll cut right (laughs) into your sheetrock. Right. Uh, And then you can never remove it. But the good ones know exactly how to do this and the seams become uh, invisible. Yeah. And and it's interesting what you said about um, uh, wall covering never died in the corporate world. Right. Uh-huh. Because it was uh, it certainly never died, but it changed. Mm-hmm. And and as um, in the 70s and 80s, there were tons of offices within the corporate world. Yeah. Right. And every office would get wall covering. <laughs> and then it became cubicles and they would use fabric on the cubicles and then it became bench systems. And and maybe now after covid, we're going to be going back to offices. I don't know. Yeah, you, could, you could teach me. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, <laughs> maybe it's, that's it's, coming it's, back. It's certainly a possibility, which yeah. is funny. But on the on the I would say now in the corporate world, I'm, we're seeing a lot of very customized prints, right? Everything is a, so you, you, you get a sample from a, from whatever, let's say some of the typical, you know, corporate uh, wall covering people Mm -hmm. and, you know, you'll say, okay, well, what's the lead time on this? What, you know, how much does it cost? And the answer comes back as, well, it depends. And uh, why does it depend? Well, it depends on how much we're going to make for you because we make it on the spot. It's almost like on-demand wall covering mm-hmm. and we can customize the colors and we can do this and we can do that. And it's a uh, you're, you're almost it's it's less about wall covering, per se, and, and a field and more about these sort of pops or these um, intricate new designs that are features. Right. Rather than, you know, just in general in a space. Yeah. And I think that a lot of that is being driven by the digital wall covering yeah. world and, and the change in machinery. And it's interesting, you'll, you'll uh, see as um, uh, companies start coming out with new product again and the reps start coming out again as, as designers at some point end up returning to the offices, right? <laughs> that, that there's some companies with huge fixed cost in what they refer to as gravure printing machines, which is traditionally how you print uh, vinyl wall covering, right? Cylinders, you set up the machine, it gets embossed. Uh, and and uh, then printed or printed and then embossed. And you have to make about 500 to 1,000 yards to make that work. Yeah. And now the next generation are digital printing machines. And so we actually have two of our own digital printing machines at um, our headquarters, which we've customized. And certainly we print uh, vinyl on it. However, on a day-to-day basis, these machines are customized for grass cloth. Really? And silk. And uh, metallic. So we, we can digitally print on gold leaf or silver leaf. Wow. And we have uh, two of our own artists that are constantly uh, painting at our studio in our offices for new designs that are part of our line. And we have a new program called Pure Imagination, where designers like Mancini Duffy can say, I have this client. I have some artwork or, or some artwork that my client has. Can we make this into a huge graphic? Right. And so we'll take that make it into a graphic and within one to two weeks we'll have it digitally printed for you wow that's amazing so compared to most companies i think are like 10 to 12 weeks now in the in terms of the traditional sort of design of it uh is it hand painted a lot of it and then essentially reproduced yes most of uh so the artwork that we are getting is either from uh, paintings that we're buying from fine artists mm-hmm. or artwork that we're actually creating at our own studio, 
having done a, like as high a resolution scan as you can. Mm-hmm. And then from there, taking that and, and printing it, which is very different from the output compared to creating artwork on the computer from scratch. Right. And, and, and to me, it's, you get a completely different effect as far as the amount of colors that, that are in it. Yeah. Uh, and the handwork that you get from, from a, a real painter. It's interesting. So I, there's a, um, we have a wall covering in, in my house that it's, it's one of your competitors, Maharam. And, you know, I actually thought it was a computerized thing, right? It's these blocks. They're pretty mm-hmm. intricate. It's, it, it's very cool. Um, but then we were at an event and I saw the actual painting and I was fascinated by it. And then I went and you look up close to the actual wall covering and you do see brush strokes. I'd never mm-hmm. even noticed it before. So it's, uh, it re- again, another sort of art side of wall covering that you don't really even even me as a designer you know never really appreciated until i saw it you know in its actual physical original form and 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 it um you know we talked at the beginning about uh what bothers me about designers and and (laughs) and so what you're talking about is the quality difference and so uh our competitor maharam which is another great company right they're investing in having artists on staff actually painting and then taking that scan and and creating artwork from it, mm-hmm. which is very different from other companies that are just you know a graphic designer sketching something up in in Photoshop, <laughs> right, or one of the other programs, yeah. and then throwing it on the digital printer. The quality of the work, right, the quality of the brush strokes, seeing all those brush strokes within there, all the colors that you can create in a watercolor, yeah, right, that you just can't do on on a computer to the same level. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. So just kind of going back to uh, just a couple of questions about sure. sort of as your brother and yourself, you know, get more involved in the company. How does the ownership transition occur from from your parents to you? Uh, it's a great question. Um, so, uh, listen, we got very, very lucky that my um, mom and dad, who were still active in the company and, and relatively young, uh, they were 62 at the time. And, um, and they were very progressive about this. And, and, uh, my dad's a, like a five-star tennis player, super competitive, entrepreneurial, and a great tennis player. Those are his, <laughs> his, you know, big areas. Right. And so he was on the tennis court, uh, down in Boca Raton, Florida, where they had, uh, uh, a second home and mom and dad had gone from, uh, oh, we'll go for a, you know, a weekend, you know, during the winter to every weekend during the winter to, okay, maybe a week or two, <laughs> you know, a month. And, and so dad is on the tennis court and he's talking to this gentleman who is uh, a CPA and business advisor and telling him about the transition and how proud he was of Philip and, and myself and how we were doing great. And, uh, and, and then the guy said, well, what are the problems that you're running into? And he started talking about those. And, and a lot of it was dad would be gone for a month or two. <laughs> Philip and I would start implementing these progressive changes in the business. He'd come back and go, what the hell happened? Go back to the other way, right? And then that cre- created friction. And uh, his friend, uh, Alan, said to him, well, you know, Eric, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Mm-hmm. He said, well, what do you mean? He said, you can't come down here to Florida for a month or two at a pop, right? Hand over the reins to the boys, have them, them run the business without you, and then come back and, and want to make these changes, right? Or go back to the old way. Yeah. And, um, and he said, and I don't think you want that. And so mom and dad decided at 62 years old that they were ready to retire and walk away. And, and I say it was kind of like the Coach K philosophy. Maybe Coach K, because, uh, you know, I'm a Duke grad, so I'm very <laughs> focused on this, right? Maybe he talked to my dad because my dad said, listen, uh, we're going to transition, transition this to you. And we came up with, you know, uh, a buyout plan of what my parents needed and, and multi-year payout to them, which would allow them to retire the way that they wanted. And he said, I'm going to stay on for a year. And then uh, transition this to you. And, and unfortunately for Philip and I, it was January of 2008 when we had this conversation. So <laughs> we kind of paid top dollar right before the bottom dropped out. <laughs> but in the end, uh, we, we um, hit the big run in 2010 and 11 and 12. And, yeah. and since th- 2010, we've really been on a huge upward project- uh, projection. It's been great. Has COVID affected you guys? Crushed us for two months negatively. So okay. mid mid March of last year, everything just stopped. Yeah. Phones stopped, of course. And April they didn't start. And uh, and around middle of and and you know I'd be on calls with designers and architects saying at some point people are going to get sick and tired of looking at their walls. <laughs> I, I'm sick and tired of looking at my own walls. And and all of a sudden mid May the phone residentially the phones lit up. Okay. And so it's interesting, you know, 
our business, we do um, a good chunk of hospitality and we do a tremendous amount in residential. And so um, the hospitality was still going because as you well know, Christian, once you start a hotel, oh, you yeah. don't stop, you know, and, and if you're like, if you had the money on the sideline, what a great time to renovate. Exactly. So, you know, second and third quarter hospitality wasn't bad last year. Right. Um, and then as residential you know, started up and started going crazy, crazy around June, July, August of last year. And then off the hook, fourth quarter, uh, hospitality stopped. Hmm. And so this year has basically been uh, the first half of the year. Residential was great. Hospitality was terrible. <laughs> and now hospitality is starting to come back. Third quarter, we started to see those green shoots that we saw in May of 2020 residentially. Yep. We're seeing those commercially. And the residential still is strong. And yeah. the question is when the residential is going to stop. Yeah. We don't know. Who knows? Yeah. It's tough to say, right? right? I mean, I think you've seen now this sort of spreading out of people. Yeah. And it may last for, for significantly longer. We'll see. Or people may come back into the cities and then that's a whole other opportunity right at that point. A so. Absolutely. And, and it's so interesting, you know, with the uh, millennials that had been living in the cities and not wanting to move to the suburbs and all of a sudden, and, and the baby boomers couldn't retire and sell their homes, mm -hmm. right? And, and so in New Jersey, where we both live, uh, I remember in February of 2020, a realtor in Franklin Lakes, New Jersey, which is, a, for those that don't know, that's a very wealthy, it's, we're, we're like the housewives, the housewives right? Are, yeah, and, and so he said to me, there is a three-year inventory of million-dollar homes in Franklin Lakes. This was in February of 2020, right? By July, they were gone. Yeah. A three-year supply was gone. Yeah. Right? And there was nothing on the market. Yeah. And everyone and wants to renovate and make it their everybody own. Everybody wants to renovate and clean up, you know, get rid of those 1990s, you know, <laughs> warm tones and so forth to make it cool. <laughs> so... Um, Let's talk about your company culture and uh, in terms of, you know, I, I listened to some of the some of the other discussions you've had, you know, you've implemented, I don't know what system it may be, um, but it's definitely sort of very YPO-ish, let's call okay. it, right? Or uh, EOS, yeah. right? The entrepreneurial operating system or scaling up and that kind of thing. So you're very focused on your core values. You're very focused on the huddles and things that you do. And what I really want to, and, and it kind of all gears toward your <clears throat> culture, but I really want to understand how you think that's helped you in this massive growth that you've you've experienced. Yeah, it's a, wow, that's a great question. Um, so, yes, when uh, Philip and I took over the business from mom and dad, uh, we got our core team. There were, I think, four or five of us together in uh, a conversation. The company was probably about 25, 30 people at the time. Uh, so we, we had grown it from the time that we joined uh, up until then. And um, we said, what's the key to us being successful? And we said, well, uh, I think that the first thing foremost is culture. And, and ultimately, we settled on culture and design, brand, right? The people have got to know that you're out there. Um, uh, we Operations, you have to have amazing operations to be able to fulfill. And you have to have strategies for growth. And we said, what, what do we want our culture to feel like? Why, why do we care about it? And we said, well, we care because when we go from 23 people to 50, we want it to feel the same way. We love the way it feels. And when we go from 50 to, to 75... I don't think we ever thought we'd get to 260, <laughs> right? But we're, we're like, we love the way the culture feels, right? And so how does it feel, right? And, and the essence was, it feels like uh, the stability of a company that at that time was about uh, 25 years old, right? So it feels like the stability of a 25 or 30-year-old company, but with an entrepreneurial uh, culture within it. Yeah. <clears throat> that feels like a startup, but you also have the stability of, of a strong, stable company. Yep. And so we're like, how do, how do we build that, right? And, and so we created uh, our values and, and created a, a, what we call, a, we, it's an acronym, but we call it WIP tags. And it's something that lives and breathes in our company every single day, right? And so it stands for wow fun. How do we create <laughs> wow fun for our customers? How do we create wow fun for our, for our colleagues? How do we create wow and fun for our vendors? Uh, integrity. Right? How do we say what we're going to do and make sure that we follow through? Passion, right? Which, which to us means enthusiasm and energy and, yeah. and being upbeat every day, right? People being excited to come to work. Uh, teamwork, making sure that we're all pulling the car in the same direction. 
The A is accountability, right? So, so ensuring that everyone feels responsible for what their tasks are and what the projects are. And G, growth. The thing that, that you know what? When I started, I was part of, I had just left Ernst Young, which is like 300,000 people or something like that, <laughs> and, and joined a company of 10. I said, listen, uh, this isn't going to get me excited. I want to be a big company. I want to grow. And, yeah. and so we grow the company and we do it by growing ourselves. And so we do trainings every single, I'd say it used to be every single month. Now it's almost every single week. We do some type of uh, ongoing training, everything from how to use Excel, you know, Excel for beginners to, to how to budget. Right. And, and I'm not talking about corporate budgets. I'm like, the, it's called, the class is called, what does that Starbucks latte cost you? <laughs> right. Right. And, and, and to leadership classes that we have for our senior and junior managers that go on every single month. We are uh, like kind of YPO ish. Yeah. We do development for our team. That's great. That's great. Um, and then as far do do you still do the, uh, do you do a company wide daily huddle? We do a company wide daily huddle. So pre COVID it was done a combination of in person. Uh, so in, in New Jersey, we have about 160 people in our headquarters or had, but when people were coming to the office, right. right? And then, uh, the balance of the staff, uh, the other, um, a uh, hundred plus people are spread out throughout the world. So we would have most of the people in the office and then we'd have a Zoom for everybody else. And uh, and then when COVID happened, it took us about a month to figure, figure it out. But around May of 2020, we started an all company Zoom, okay. which still continues to this day. That's great. From 11.45 to 12, the whole company gets together. We whip tag each other like, hey, Christian, you did an amazing job yesterday on that podcast, right? That's awesome. And, and, and recognize. And then we go through... Um, our scoreboard. So we have a scoreboard of, of, so everybody knows how we're doing. And then every department puts up what their top initiative is and how they're doing against it for the week. Did you work with someone to create all of this or did you guys come up with it on your own in kind of combination? Went, went to a presentation and I saw Cameron Harold, uh, who's a great speaker. He was a guy, one of the founders of 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Okay. And he showed how, how they did it and said, you guys should be doing something like this. And, and he has videos on, online. If you guys want to Google it, 1-800-GOT-JUNK-HUDDLE. And, and we thought this was great. And we took that and then made it our own. That's great. I love it. Yeah, because we've worked with a we worked with a coach and, and really set us up for success. Um, but it's it to keep with a coach is a very it, it's a lot of work. It's right? a lot of and work. We always said, well, if we kept the discipline, <clears throat> we could do this ourselves because it, a lot of it is just common sense, right? I mean, it's you're following through with the plan you've already and, and it's rhythm. It's rhythm. It's yeah. like that's that's why I think it wouldn't work for us if we didn't do it every day. Yeah, I like that. Because it's all about the rhythm of just, be, you know, I like to say when we first told everyone about this huddle idea and we showed them the video and, and people were like, oh, my God, this is the dorkiest, weirdest thing in the world. And and, and it felt so weird and uncomfortable for yeah. like the first two oh, yeah. weeks. And every day afterwards, we'd go, all right, what went well today and what, what are we going to change tomorrow? Yep. And after two weeks, everyone started to get it. And and one of the great things we said, Philip and I are not allowed to lead it. Okay. Right? Uh, and so so after COVID happened, we started leading it on Tuesdays. I think the company needed to see us and hear from us. but. Yeah. Uh, the, this thing run, uh, so this thing runs without us. That's amazing. I love it. It is great. You know? So back to a couple of architecture questions real sure. quick. Um, so how can, how can architects or designers, you know, kind of do a better job in terms of specifying your projects? You know, what do we miss when we, you know, kind of throw it down on paper and say, Hey, this is what we want. So I, I think the, um, I don't know that I have a great answer for you, Christian. However, I'd say I think one of the most important things is for uh, companies like yours, the, the corporate firms, to understand what their vendors' capabilities are. Mm. And I think the only way that that gets there is through relationships. And and listen, you know, um, these days we work in an Amazon world. We expect to go on the web and find what we want quickly and click and get the yeah. sample the next day. And And you can get the sample the next day. However... I think so much of, of what you all do is bespoke, especially at your level. Yeah. And so it's so important, um, I think, in order to get um, products and, and a finished uh, look that looks different than what everyone else has, a great thing for the architects in your firm would be to understand the, the companies that cross over between residential and commercial and have, I think, higher end looks, less generic looks than mm -hmm. some of the commercial firms. And then understand what are your capabilities to make this on a commercial level? 
And so, so from our standpoint, we have the ability to take any of our 3,500 natural textured specialty wood veneers, uh, uh, anything that you'd want, and recreate it in a type two vinyl and do it quickly and do it inexpensively. Do yeah. it within your, your price point. Right. But I'd say that most um, hotel designers that I speak to hear Philip Jeffries and they go, amazing wall covering, amazing design out of my budget. Right. Right. And, and, and right. so it's going to get knocked in with a with a luggage cart and it's ruined <laughs> and it's ruined. Right. And I'm going to get a phone call and all I don't want is a phone call. Right. And, and so I think that that's a, a um, opportunity out there for uh, commercial interior designers and architects. Yeah, that's great. I love it. So. Um, has the profession changed for you um, over since you took over the company? Have you seen a real change in terms of the generational shift uh, in terms of designers and, and architects and, and some of their expectations? Uh, less so residentially than commercially. Okay. And so it's interesting. Um, uh, I told this, this story recently in 2009 when the world ended with, you know, the recession and so forth. And, and uh, Philip and, and Eric and I sat in a conference room and said, what are we going to do? Right. Like and, and there were two options on the board. Right. One was cut expenses, cut overhead. Right. And, and let's wait this thing out. The other was get out on the road and figure out how the world's changing. Mm. And we said, let's go for the second. And so Philip and I and, and my dad, to a lesser extent, traveled literally from, as my brother likes to say, from Singapore to Sag Harbor and everywhere in between. And we asked, what's changing in the industry and in how you specify fabrics and wall coverings? And one designer in San Francisco um, said to me, he's one of those, I said to him at market, can you, can you share with me? And he said, oh, give me your card. I'll think about it. And that, that's the line, like, I'll, I'll never hear from this guy again. Right. Right? And I was shocked when like two weeks later, I get an email from him. It's long email. And he's like, you know what? I can't get this thought out of your head. I'm a couple martinis in overlooking the mountains in Healdsburg. And his name was Jacques Saint-Dizier. And he said, uh, uh, and he goes, and here's how the business works and how I think it'll continue to work. Right? He goes, you got to have the product. Don't try and sell, sell me a, a velvet if I need a mohair. Don't sell, try and sell me a linen if I need uh, a vinyl. Right? Yeah. He goes, second, you got to have the quality. You got to have the quality and you have to have the color range. Right? If you don't have the right neutrals, forget it. And he goes, and that's changing. He's like, third, he's like, in the biggest change, he goes, people want it now. Yeah. People don't want to part with their money. And I think uh, 2021 is the same thing as 2009. People don't want to part with their money and wait 40 weeks for lead time, which is what <laughs> I, I heard at High Point Market, they're quoting 40 weeks for lead time of furniture. It's just crazy. Yeah. Oh, and that's yeah. with the deposit. Yep. Right. And he's and like, it's so, unknown because now you don't know how long it's going to actually take to know, get here. Right. Yeah. And, 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 and I got to live a year without this. Right. Yeah. After paying for it. So uh, uh, people want stock. And he said, but but the key thing is this. He goes, people are always going to buy from those that they have a relationship with. And, and let me explain what that means. He goes, a relationship are people that take care of you in the good times. And more importantly, they take care of you when something goes wrong. Yeah. And he goes, that's who I give my business to. And I think that um, it, it's harder on the commercial side. It's harder when uh, uh, designers aren't in the office. Architects aren't in the office. Yeah. I mean, that that's a huge challenge to all my sales reps right now. Absolutely. I have this amazing new launch that we just came out with. How do I get FaceTime? Yeah. Right? Well, since my since my wife is a furniture rep, yeah. I, I, <clears throat> I would say at Mancini, we started letting people in the minute they wanted to come in. And you have no idea how many reps say, this is the only firm <clears throat> that I've been in in two, in two years, basically. And... And it is because not only because I want to support the rep community because it is a very valuable community. It's because we need to see and touch and feel things. The Zoom stuff doesn't work. I mean, I we were FedExing you, people's we were FedExing samples to each other's houses during right. COVID. It made no sense whatsoever. And, and you got to see what's new and next. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like two, two years of product looks starts to look dated. Absolutely. Right. And, yeah. and, and then you show that to a client and they're like, ah, it starts to look dated, uh, you know, so being able to see what's new and have the, the samples and, and have those relationships. You got to sit on the chair if it's a furniture sample and a client is buying 500 or 5,000 of these things. Absolutely. I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to make a, you know, make a choice off of the picture on an internet. Yeah. So, and, I, and, and I've, you know, as I listen to your podcast, a lot of, of people speak about that particular issue that too many people are buying off the web and listen, it's going to be. Uh, it's going to happen more and more. It's it's evolving. You know, there's it's the time of Material Bank and <laughs> and all the other you know uh, aggregator sites and so forth. Um, 
And I think the companies that get ahead are the ones that will be hybrid in that that aspect and say, you know what, I also want to let the reps in because they're a resource. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. So bringing it all back around, if you had to do it differently as far as your career is concerned, what what might you have changed so far? Hard hard to say because, you know, um, uh, know, I I have this... um, sheet up on the wall and one of the the lines underneath it is everything that has happened has happened for a reason Mm -hmm. and could never happen any other way right and so uh i feel uh, a lot of gratitude for the relationships i have and and the company that i have and the people that i work with and so i don't think i change very much christian all right cool i love it i love it well listen thank you so much for being my guest here on thank you for having me this has been amazing your story is just so inspirational and um, I really, really appreciate you you sharing it with us. Thanks for the time, my friend. Yeah, awesome. So obviously, to to see and read more about Jeffrey uh, and their company, Philip Jeffries, uh, check out their website at philipjeffries.com and on their Instagram, Philip Jeffries Ltd. And uh, yeah, and you're on LinkedIn as well. So awesome. Thanks, right. Christian. Thank you again. Appreciate it.